I've always felt that the day that I'm no longer nervous about doing a game or anxious or at least a little on edge is the day I should probably stop doing it because if doing live TV doesn't get your blood pumping then you probably need to find a different you know, line of work. That was Ken Mack talking about his very cool but also very demanding job as a producer at CBS Sports. I'm Elizabeth Pearson Gar, and this is the Experience Podcast. I just looked up the definition of the word job as a noun. Here it is. A piece of work, especially a specific task done as part of the routine of one's occupation or for an agreed price. Well, that sounds pretty blah, doesn't it? On this episode, we've compiled some of my past interviews with guests who have really intriguing jobs, dream jobs, challenging jobs, unusual jobs we don't really know much about. We'll start with a job very few people in the world have ever or will ever have, photographing the Olympic Games. In season one, episode 12, I got to speak with Jeff Cable. He's been to seven Olympics with the ultimate up close and personal ticket. When you're watching television at home, you guys see way more of the Olympics than I ever see. I'm lucky to see two events or three events a day, tops. But what are some of the things that you see that we don't see? Oh, there's lots. I mean, (laughs) you know, there are things like when Simone Biles was supposed to do the balance beam in the team's competition, and then she stopped. And we didn't know why she stopped, but I was standing two feet from her and listening to them joking around and I could tell she wasn't hurt. So I was like, why is she not going? Her name was on the board. She was still in her warm-up suit. I'm like, she's not going. So we were confused, but we heard them talking and I could hear what they were saying and they were joking around. And we forget that these girls are young girls, they're teenagers. And they sounded like teenagers. They were making fun of certain people or you know, commenting on what someone was wearing. Those are the things that most people don't hear. And I've been in situations where, like for instance, they banned all alcohol drinking in Tokyo because you know, they didn't want someone getting drunk and then having some COVID spread. But when the woman won gold after the water polo match was over, I said to the team, we should get portraits of all the, the women with their gold medals. We've never done that at previous Olympics. So I was on the pool deck. This is now you know, a good hour and a half after the game is over. And the medical team shows up with their ice chest. You know, generally it's for icing down you know, all their wounds. Well, it was all margaritas and stuff, so and tequila oh. shots. So obviously it was not on television and we didn't publicize it too much, yeah. but we had a big old party and it was a blast. So there was the fun part like that where you get to experience it almost like the athlete. And they did a team picture and said, Jeff, you're in this shot. So get someone else to take the picture because you're part of the team. And those are the moments where it just warms my heart that these people treat me like that. I remember being in uh, Pyeongchang in Korea and the woman from USA Hockey won gold medal. And it was a big deal, they beat the Canadians. They don't allow photographers on the ice. Typically, you have to shoot from behind the plexi, but as a team photographer, I was allowed on the ice to shoot the gold medal celebration. And I was on the ice with them for probably an hour. I mean, they were ready to turn the lights out in the venue and they were still celebrating. And Hillary Knight, who's one of the athletes, I said, Hillary, hey, can I borrow your gold medal? I want to get a picture with it. And she's like, yeah. So she skated over and she put the gold medal on my neck and I got a picture. Well, I didn't realize that there would be security. Every time there's, you know, handing out gold medals, there's security there to make sure that no one takes that medal. So this guy comes over to me and he, I can't repeat what he said uh, on your podcast because it's not, he yelled at me, like, get that blanking blank, you know, medal off 
And I was like freaking out. Luckily, we'd already gotten the picture. And Hillary skated back over and he's yelling at me. And she's like, no, 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 no. He's I gave our it to photographer. Him. Yeah. Yeah, I gave it to him. He's our team photographer. And then he came over to me after he said, I apologize. I'm so sorry. I thought you were just like a normal photographer. And I said, I am a normal photographer. I just happen to be <laughs> their photographer. But it's fun to go to the team parties when they win. And a lot of times the teams will say to me, don't take pictures, just enjoy it with us, which oh. is really special. Yeah, those are the things that make it fun or even more fun than being there. How about the times that an athlete doesn't succeed? I mean, to just qualify for the Olympics is such an incredible accomplishment. Right. And have you seen somebody, especially if there's high expectations for them and they don't get to that round or they don't sure. medal when they're expected to, have you ever had to sort of take a photo or kind of be in their face and it gets really awkward? Well, you do. You go for the, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, right? Yeah. You, you do have to photograph that. And yes, I've done that where, you know, either a particular athlete or a team fails to medal. And sure, there's frustration, there's sadness, tears sometimes. But that's still, as a job of a photographer, we have to tell a story and that's part of that story. I will say, going back to what we just talked about with uh, women's ice hockey, in Sochi, in Russia, the woman from Team USA were up by a goal with like a couple minutes left. Ira is already changing lenses to go on the ice to shoot the gold medal celebration. And Canada pulled their goalie and scored a goal to tie it. They went to overtime and then Canada won. And I can tell you that that was like watching someone die. Because if you win a bronze medal, you're in a bronze medal match, you either win a medal or you don't. So you're thrilled to win a bronze. When you're in a gold medal game, you either win a gold or you lose a gold. No one says, I won a silver. Right? We've you always lost said a gold. that at home. It almost seems better to win a bronze than to get a silver. Because it always seems like sometimes, you're losing the gold. Or it depends well, on, let the, me tell on you, the sport. After that game, I'm in the press room sometimes for three, four hours working on images for the team, especially for a gold medal game. So I left the arena probably around one in the morning. I walked outside and all the, the women from USA Hockey were outside crying with their families still. And this was three, four hours after the game. And it literally, it was like there had been a death in the family. And I did not photograph that because it was a personal moment. Anyway, it was too dark. I didn't want to do it. Plus, I don't think they would have appreciated that. But the team party was the next day celebrating their silver medal. There were a couple of the ladies who would not even speak. There was one person who didn't show up to the party. It was really devastating that they didn't win that gold. There were some that were fine with it. And as I told them, you know, you're lucky to win a silver medal. It's an amazing accomplishment, but they lost a gold. I did take some photographs there, but I, I didn't photograph the girls who were distraught. I just felt like that was their own moment. The, there's an invasion of privacy. And even though I know them and they know that I have their best interest in mind when I'm taking those photos, you have to figure out that line. And sometimes that line does get crossed. I, hopefully not by me. Mike Pegg is a Googler. He's worked at Google for more than 15 years. In season one, episode two, he took me through a typical day at Google headquarters, including some of the famous perks. So let's just move on to the nap pods. I've seen pictures, yeah. so I know they exist. I've seen people, I've seen members of our engineering team who I know have been kind of killing themselves working on something, pulling long nights, pulling long hours. In some cases, people with new families that are at work and have been up, but are also trying to meet the demands of whatever project they're on and just need to lie down. And it can be a little awkward to do that at your desk. 
it can be, you know, go to your car, I guess, if you drove your car. Face but like, down yeah, in your laptop. Exactly. And you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see that, too, of just people yeah. looking straight down in their nap pods don't cost much money and and there's can you describe it for anyone yeah so basically i've not seen it the best thing to think of is picture a dentist chair that can recline back a little bit further and then basically just a big bubble around you that can pull (laughs) down almost like as a visor as you're lying down you look up just imagine a half kind of semicircle dome that's over top of you and in some of the more deluxe ones i think there's a, a chance to turn on like a white noise but the most random thing I think I've ever seen at Google was <laughs> coming up a stairway, turning the corner, and looking and seeing Hulk Hogan in a nap pod. Just <laughs> the most random thing I think I've ever seen. You mean you because, can look in them? Are they glass? Um, so you saw Hulk Hogan napping? Yes. Hulk Hogan <laughs> was napping, and it was very random. And it was, I think, a lot of celebrities and notable people that will be coming to Google will be on the lookout for things that they've heard of. And I think for him, it was, hey, I've heard about these nap pods. Can you show me one? And then he went and sat in them. And there was like an entourage with him. And I walked up and I, I could see him getting into it. And I said to someone, I, I said, is that is that Hulk Hogan, the wrestler? And they said, yeah, yeah, he's, he's visiting Google today and really wanted to check out a nap pod. So, oh, that yeah. is, I mean, what a non sequitur, right? Sort of out of place. To, first that he would be a Google and then he'd be in the nap pod. Yes. Oh, I've also heard that dogs can come in. I just yeah. love that idea. Do you feel like that increases productivity or just adds to the environment? I think it does. I guess you think about that saying of bringing your whole self to work. You know, a lot of people have pets, specifically dogs. Cats aren't aren't allowed, but dogs are a big part of people's life. It's actually surprising. I, I haven't seen a case where a dog has been unruly or you sort of thought to yourself, hmm, they might not have wanted to bring that specific dog, right? <laughs> um, it's just always People just are been... probably good regulators of that. They know Absolutely. if they've got that dog, that one will yes. stay at home. Well, there's even someone who works at Google as a Googler, a dog that comes to Google as a Doogler. <laughs> so so there's like- A Doogler? A Doogler, yeah. So there's like oh. dogs at Google. There's a whole like community of people that talk about their dogs. And I always think it's great. And a lot of times too, when they come up to a cafe, they have to tie the dog at the door. They can't bring the dog in the cafe. It's a really funny experience because you see some people will just keep walking and ignore. And then there's some that can't not stop and say hello to the dog. And so there's a, a neat uh, dynamic with it for sure. Or when dogs come to meetings, oh. that's all, also another fun experience. So why no cats? Do Larry and Sergey just know. didn't like I cats? Think dogs are a little more portable than cats really when it gets right yeah. into it. You can't. Well, I'm, you a, can't... You know, I'm a dog person, so exactly. I'm on board with this policy. Yes. Leashing a cat's just weird. So. Yeah, well, and the dog cat thing. There's a whole dynamic. Yeah. Let's just keep Absolutely. the culture pure. Yes. We don't want cooglers. We just want dooglers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. In season one, episode six, veteran CBS sports producer Ken Mack shared what it's like working behind the scenes in live TV. So I wanted to get into your head mm-hmm. the hours leading into the game. Do you sort of need to meditate ahead of time or what's your state, your mental state getting <laughs> into there? Because that's three, three and a half, four hours of pretty intense work, just needing to be super present. Yes. So are you kind of anxious leading up to that? Are you excited, nervous? All of the above. I've always felt that the day that I'm no longer nervous about doing a game or anxious or at least a little on edge is the day I should probably stop doing it. Because if doing live TV doesn't get your blood pumping, then you probably need to find a different you know, line of work. <laughs> but 
try not to be nervous. I think that the best cure for nerves, at least for me, is preparation. If you know that you've done the work all week, all month, all year, if you've been doing the work, then you know that you're ready for it. Doesn't mean that the night before I don't ever have that bad dream. There's every once in a while you have that dream where you're not prepared for a game and the worst ones to wake up from. But I think if you're prepared, you don't feel overwhelmingly nervous. But look, I mean, certainly the bigger the game, the bigger the stage, the more anxious you are that you've got every T crossed and every I dotted because you know it's never going to go perfectly. That's the fun of it. That's also the hard part. That's the nature. That is exactly. I mean, the number of times you sit there and go, okay, we're going to do this element or this promo right after this play, and then something major happens. You know, there's a touchdown, there's a penalty, there's uh, any number of weird things happens, and you just need to be able to adjust on the fly. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that I've found over the years is like they talk about for athletes, whether it's pitchers or defensive backs, or they always say you got to have a short memory. I think it's the same thing in TV. Things will go wrong. Things sometimes go wrong. And you've got to make sure that whatever the last thing that happened, whether it was good or bad, doesn't affect the next thing. And being in that moment, I think, is a key to what we do. Well, I think it's also probably exhilarating. And in a way, it's an exciting way to live because your job makes you be fully in the moment. You have to be fully present. 100%. You're 100% You cannot do your job on cruise control. No. So you really are there. And probably at times you ever say, how are we at the end of the fourth quarter already? Oh, or at the end oh, of the game? I, 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 you know. I, th- I think most every game, you're 100% right. You're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. One of the funny things is when you make the transition, whenever it is, at the end of the football regular season, or if you're doing the playoffs, or you're working on the Super Bowl, the football games are, they're long. They're three hours, three hours and change, whatever. But the funniest thing is when you make that transition in the first week of doing college basketball, And all of a sudden, you look up and you go, wait, it's halftime already? Like, the game's halfway over, and you haven't, you've just settled into a rhythm. It just, like, it goes like that. It's so funny. Every year, and I've been doing this for decades, and every year, you still go, wait a second, it's already halftime? Like, I'm not ready for this, right? For many years, Eric David's job was to protect and serve. He was a United States Marine. In Season 1, Episode 8, Eric shared with me the challenges and rewards of being in the military. If you were to have children or nieces, nephews, just other kids in your life who said they would like to go into the military, what would you advise them? I think maybe a couple of things. One, I think to recognize sort of the military's function in society and and a piece of that is lethality and to be a force ready for combat. And I think being okay with that is important. I think another piece is there's going to be ripple effects of something you sign up for when you're 18 years old that are going to sort of limit the ability to control your life. And you just need to sort of relinquish control of a lot of things up until the moment you get out of uniform and just to be okay with that and accept that. And then thirdly, like it's, it was a great opportunity. And it it just, I I think that the professional development that it gave me at a young age, the people that allowed me to interact with um, the stories that I, I have, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade, but I think, I think, the first two would need to be true in order to sort of really enjoy the the latter. And I think for me, like I, I wrestled with the first two some and the moments when I was wrestling with those were the moments when the third was, was less exciting. Yeah. It's a good kind of microcosm about a lot of big decisions in life. There are pros and cons and you, you learn a lot from every situation. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you got so much from it and you're in such a good place right now. Yeah. 
thanks. Appreciate you having me on to um, share some share some thoughts and some oh, of my story. Thank you, thank you. It's so fascinating. I thank you for your service. I mean, do people come up and tell you that a lot? I hope they do. Yeah, I think they. Yeah, I think I think they do. But it's it's nice to just be able to sort of share some stories. And I think the next level of curiosity is is more refreshing than a than a thank you for your service. Um, and I think I, I think there's a, a veteran community right now that's going through some challenging times as they watch what's happening in Afghanistan and having maybe lost friends there or been been injured there. Like I, I think it's an interesting time, I think, for the veteran community right now, especially that was the thank you for your service war where I think people were okay with having folks deployed abroad so long as like there was a detachment between people deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan with the civilian populace that was a little bit smoothed over by sort of our, our glorification of the military and putting folks on pedestals when they came home. But but without sort of asking some of these questions. And I have no stories from those wars, but I think the more folks who are listening here and you and just asking those these types of questions to people and just seeing what people might want to share and, and their their real ground truth stories. And that's sort of the best way to sort of continue to create a healthy dialogue between sort of our military forces and, and the population. I had a much different type of conversation with my next guests, the charming Cliff and Joyce Penner. In season two, episode five, the Penners discussed their job of several decades, sexual therapists. So you know that the topic is very touchy, shall we say. People say, don't talk about sex, politics, and money. And yet this right. is something that really needs to be talked about. I mean, therapy is a safe place to do it. But do you find that people are still very reluctant to share? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that by choosing to come to us, they have already acknowledged that they have a sexual issue so when they call. So they have that measure of openness already. But some of them are very uncomfortable and others are very comfortable. But the ones that are uncomfortable, about 10 minutes into the initial assessment, they'll say, I just can't believe I'm talking this openly to you about it. And they get very comfortable with us. And that's something that almost has been there from the beginning. And we don't know whether it's a special gift, but now we're trying to help other sexual therapists create that comfort. Because if we're comfortable, then we're going to make the client's comfortable. Yeah. So what really happens is that they sense that we're not hesitant or cautious. We're just calling things what they are and naming it and moving right along. We don't blush. We don't apologize. And then it flows literally after the first five or 10 minutes. It's a non-issue. And part of that, I think, is because we talked openly about it so early in our marriage because we were raised in Mennonite homes and churches where the topic was not addressed. It was not like we had any bad experiences. We just were like empty slates. And so we spent the first year of our marriage and our spiritual growth studying what the Bible had to teach about sex and just going through every scriptural passage, trying to figure out whether we were supposed to be enjoying this or not. And we were, so we were trying, Cliff never had doubts that we should enjoy it, but I wasn't <laughs> And so we read and talked so much about it that it really was good preparation for what we ended up being called to do. And then our particular niche is in the religious community. So we have worked with most Protestant groups, Catholic, 
Jewish, but primarily in the Protestant mm -hmm. part of the world. And even Eastern religious people come to us because they feel safe with us because of so our we've perspective. dealt with quite a few Buddhists and, and uh, others along the way Muslims. as well. Is it sometimes one member of the couple is eager to have counseling and the other is quite reluctant? That does happen. I typically do the triage or assessment. People call or email or contact us in some way, and I'll find out the information. And sometimes the man's hesitant, but sometimes it's actually the other way. And they'll say, you know, I can't get my spouse to come. What can I do? And we'll say, if you change, it is going to force a change in your relationship. And it's likely that your spouse will want to get involved. And so it's not uncommon at all that we'll start with one. And then after a time, the other one is willing to join. What people are cautious about is they don't want to be blamed. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be shamed. They don't want to be judged. And so that's the fear. And they're uncomfortable just being open about it because they've never been. In Season 2, Episode 7, I interviewed my close friend Jessica Galbraith. She doesn't get a pay stub for her job, but she does find it extremely rewarding. Jessica is raising eight children, and she defines her role in a very specific way. So how do you deal with just each kid having such different needs? I mean, I have two kids who are just very different personalities from each other and do different activities and have different emotional needs and all of that. I'm always just amazed at how you can meet your kids where they are and handle all of their needs. How do you do that in a day or over a week or whatever it takes? Yeah. So, I mean, I do have a goal to have a check-in at least, especially with my teenagers now, at least once a day where the two of us have a conversation, whether it's on the way to dance class or if it's right before they go to bed or whatever. I really make a goal to every day have some sort of one-on-one -on -one time where I'm not distracted by other things, where I can kind of get into what's going on in their lives or just talk about whatever. Like I remember Abigail, one year, I don't know if she was in third grade or fourth grade. And, you know, I'd planned this huge birthday party for her and ordered the bouncy house and had, you know, all the invitations out. And, you know, when I started planning the birthday party, she kind of said, you know, okay, yeah, I'll have a, and then shortly afterwards, she started saying like, I really don't want a birthday party. And, and then she get more and more vocal about not wanting to have a birthday party. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll just kind of problem solve and see what's going on. Like, what is the reason? Like, and as it turns out, you know, she just didn't want to have that many people all paying attention to her. Hmm. Foreign concept to me. <laughs> and, you know, Ben's a little bit more introverted and, and he heard us talking and he looked at me and he said, why are you making her have a birthday party when she clearly doesn't want a birthday party? And I canceled the birthday party. And so as a mother, that's been something that, that I've definitely had to learn. Like just because I would love to have all of my friends over and have a big party doesn't necessarily mean that all my kids want that every year. I don't need to be by myself, but some of my kids do want to be by themselves and it doesn't mean they're sad and I need to go in and cheer them up. There are some of those learning moments throughout parenting that I just kind of had to figure out because they're not all like me and kind of recognizing that and allowing them to have that 
personality without trying to make them be like me. One time you said something to me that was just so profound about parenting. You're not just trying to make sure that they're fed and educated. You have this 18-year arc of raising moral, emotionally intelligent, secure people. It's not just about sort of getting them out of the house. I just love that you are so intentional about your parenting and that you really take this role so seriously and playfully. You're very thoughtful about it. Oh, thank you. And I feel like if I just looked at my life and so this is a perfect example. I was at a wedding and I was sitting next to a woman who had decided not to have children. And she was trying to build me up with my choice of being a stay-at-home mom. And she said, you know, if you add it up, all the hours of cleaning that you do and all the driving that you do and all the laundry at the going rate for how much it takes to hire someone to do that, you actually make a lot of money. <laughs> and I turned to her and I said, oh, that's not how I see my job at all. I am not a housekeeper or an Uber driver or a cook. I am a product manager and my product is my children. And I have a deliverable in 18 years. And within that 18 years, I have a tremendous amount that has to be developed in each of these products. And that's what I'm doing. And along the way, like when I'm driving Alexis this morning, she and I had a 20 minute conversation. And during that conversation, we talked about what's going on with Ukraine, what's going on with Russia. We talked about education. So there's not only a relationship development, but there's also a values lesson there where we're sharing values and she's 18 now. So she's sharing back with me and, and we're kind of developing her critical thinking skills. So somebody might look at that and say, oh, well, you know, that would have been a $70 Uber ride. And so you made $70. And I just think, oh my gosh, no, like driving is the excuse for me to be able to raise my child and to develop this. And not that children are products, you know, in the sense that we just like put them on the right. line and then we ship them off at 18. But my job was talking to her and developing those moral standards and education, critical thinking skills. It was not driving the car. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at it more as a project manager, then it's not just you know, the $25 an hour of cooking or cleaning that you're adding up. And, you know, clearly if that were the way that I saw my job, I would not be a happy mother. Another busy mom I interviewed is Jess Carpenter. In season two, episode 12, we talked about her many roles, mom, marketer, social media influencer, novelist, children's book author, all while her baby was sleeping on her chest. It must be so fun to just create these characters out of nothing, out of whole cloth. Yeah. The name, yeah, what they look like, what their personality is in relationship to whom, you know, you get to create all of it. You're creating an entire world. Yeah. It's really fun. I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, when you have the time to write them, it is a very exciting, fun process that I'm excited to get back into, you know, once he grows up a little bit, my youngest. <laughs> so yeah, how do you do it? How do you schedule your days to find the time to write and then to do your social media yeah. projects? So, you know, I do have 
like a nearly full-time job where I work in SEO marketing. And so I don't have like set hours, but I do have work that needs to get done every single day. So my oldest two, um, my oldest is in kindergarten. So she goes to school every day. And then my second one is in preschool. So he goes twice a week. So I get a lot of work done on those two days when I am just home alone with my youngest. When they're all home, it's a little bit of a different story, but balancing it for me, you can't set a schedule. There's absolutely no schedule that can be set for me Um, because sometimes it's like, hi, I wake up and there's a work emergency and I have to hop on. And sometimes it's, you know, the kids are sick with the stomach flu, like what happened two weeks ago? And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So there's no scheduling it for sure. And so I just give myself a lot of grace. You know, sometimes the house is absolutely a mess. Sometimes the kids have to watch a little bit more TV than normal, or they have to entertain themselves a little bit more. Or um, sometimes I'm working like late at night between the hours of like nine and midnight, because that's when I can get the most stuff done. It's impressive. You can even stay awake when you have a baby. (laughs) You can stay up till midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're all, me and my husband are like late nighters. We sit and, you know, binge watch our Netflix shows then. So I just like work while we're watching (laughs) Netflix, but. (laughs) Well, yeah, you definitely have to give yourself grace anytime. And especially when you have a baby and especially when you're juggling a lot of different things. Yes. Also must be a nice reason to self-publish because then you can set your own deadlines. You know, if you had somebody coming and saying, you know, in two months, I need this. And another two months, I need that. That's just a lot of pressure when, like you said, these other things are going to keep coming up. Exactly. Yeah, it's not doable. I don't have a nanny and my kids don't go to daycare. So, you know, I am a stay at home mom, but I also work and I have these hobbies that, you know, I like to fulfill. And so there's just some stuff that, yeah, gets put on the back burner, like the third book that I am writing in the series, just not going to happen until, until I can get my head on a little bit more straight and it's not so, you know, chaotic. And so things just take turns being priorities is what I say. Rebecca Firth made her baking blog her priority, and it grew into a massive success, along with two cookbooks. In Season 2, Episode 6, she shared her experiences, along with lots of inspiration. Once I separated from my husband, I wanted to create a life for my kids and I where I could be successful, but actually be around for them. And there was a period of time where I was working like a nine to five job and trying to raise two little people by myself. And it was so hard. (laughs) My hat's off to anybody raising kids by themselves. So I really was like, I don't want to miss out on all these important things in their life. I just wanted to recreate my life. Actually, the phrase I kept using was, I want to recreate my reality. And my uncle was like, you sound insane. And I was like, I realize it sounds insane, but I don't want to be on my deathbed and be like, why didn't I try to do something different or make my life work the way I want it to work? Yeah, I think it sounds impressive and inspirational, not insane. (laughs) So you submitted to Sunset Magazine. It was successful. And then what was the jump between that and the blog? There was about a year period before I submitted that recipe where I was really soul searching. I was like, I have to redirect my path in life. I was working a job literally just because it was the job available, not because it was anything that I wanted. And I'd never actually had a job like that before. They'd always been kind of passion jobs. I started taking up every writing job possible on my after hours. So I was working nine to five and then I started taking like some of them were not 
ideal, maybe like helping write a brochure or helping write online copy or anything and everything. And then at the same time, I was taking creative writing classes through Stanford's extension because writing is just something I love so much. And one of my best friends that I grew up with was like, I always thought you were going to end up being a writer. And I was like, so did I. I was like, where where am I right now? And so I just kept going in that direction and literally had a year where I like was just grasping and thinking and brainstorming. I couldn't quite figure out where I was going to go. I had already purchased Displaced Housewife, the URL, and I was just sitting on it. And I didn't know what to do with it. And then as soon as Sunset was like, we love that. We're going to send you $250. I was like, that's what I should be doing. Because I love cooking. I love baking. I was like, I'm going to do this. And then it'll combine writing and this. And I just believed with all my heart that this was like the path. I love that passion. (laughs) And I love that you followed where your heart was leading. I love writing, so I'm going to pursue that. And it didn't happen overnight. I think people look at it and say, oh, you're so successful. And it looks like this kind of dream situation because everything on the site is so delectable and your writing is so fun and full of energy. But it's not like you just turned on the computer one day and had this super successful blog. I mean, this was a journey. It really, it was a lot of work and it was hard to get there. I think when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, you're like walking blindly into the night. You're just kind of like trying to feel your way. You can feel like you're headed in the right direction maybe, but you're not quite sure. And I just kept thinking, I'm just going to trust my gut. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep digging and something's going to pan out in this direction. I will say it's very hard, and you have maybe experienced this as well, starting a podcast. I think when you start to do something like this, I heard somebody refer to it one time as like, stay in your lane. Like, is this what you do all day? I remember hearing that a lot. So you're just baking all day. People are like, I don't understand what's happening. (laughs) I remember like another mom saying to me one time, well, you don't really work. And I remember I was like, oh my gosh, actually, I really do. So So it's one of those things that nobody knows how much work is involved unless they're actually doing the same thing. There's (laughs) so much behind the scenes work. I mean, starting this podcast has been so much more challenging than I anticipated. It's like Mm -hmm. I knew certain parts of it and that part was appealing and that's why I wanted to do it. And I wanted to do it partly for some challenge, but I had no idea how many curveballs were going to be thrown at me and I'd have to learn about this and I'd have to learn about that. Oh, and now this is going wrong. But you keep pursuing, you keep going forward because you do love doing it, but it's different than what you anticipated at times. Right, well, and it like keeps changing. Yes, Definitely, definitely. Someone also told me it's like a marathon Mm -hmm. after a marathon after a marathon. (laughs) Right. There's not really an end. (laughs) Well, it sort of makes me think of I am reading Atomic Habits. He talks about how it's not necessarily about I want to run a marathon. It's that you want to develop the habits of the type of person that runs a marathon. Otherwise, if the marathon's just your goal, then you're going to not be into it afterwards. So I've really been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, who do I want to identify with? What type of habits will that person be doing every day instead of thinking of it as goal line oriented? It also helps propel you forward and be open to all the possibilities and challenges that are inevitably going to come your way. Right. As you grow. Because if you do just stay in your lane, like the person said, 
that's nice for a little bit. Like I'm sure you got to a place where you were successful or whatever. I'd be interested to hear what your definition of that is. Maybe it's changed over time, but then the goal posts probably change, right? Well, I will say one thing that I do, and I recommend this to anybody that's starting out something new, or even if you've been doing it for a while, like start it right now. I just keep a word doc. And every time you have some accomplishment, and it could be like somebody sending, I love these cookies, they're my favorite cookies, or whether it's like a food and wines, reposting something or wanting to include my book or whatever, even like the most minute, tiny little thing I date and put it in this thing. Because it's so easy for us to forget all these little things that are happening. And if you track them, it's a great way to like keep the tank full of that energy and that drive. I think that's a really brilliant idea. I think human nature, we often remember or focus on the hard things or the negative things. Mm -hmm. And the, the things that went well, we kind of went like, oh, of course that went well. But you need to mark it and refer to it. I took her advice. I started a doc of little wins. So thanks, Rebecca. And thanks to all of my guests for sharing their inspirational experiences with me. You can hear all of these full interviews at my website, theexperiencepodcast.net. You can also sign up for our newsletter there and find out how to follow us on social media. Season three is coming next week. We have so many more interesting and entertaining guests coming up. So please keep listening and tell some friends. I'm Elizabeth Pearson Gar. Thank you for joining the experience.